Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 in Genesis chapter 4. I'm extremely grateful you've taken time to watch this morning's service. I know it's a little bit different participating at home. My family and I watch each Sunday as well, and it's harder, even harder to watch when you're the preacher. And uh, one thing that I think might actually help over the next three weeks is for you to have a Bible with you when you do watch. We're going to be digging into God's Word a lot over the next few weeks, and some of the verses are going to be on screen uh, for you to look at, and some of them aren't. And so I thought it might help you to benefit more from our time together if you were able to read along with what I share. Bob Russell was the longtime senior minister at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville that helped take that church from just a couple hundred people to more than 20,000. And recently, Bob Russell was asked to record a short video message that would be an encouragement to churches and in particular young preachers who were struggling with how to deal with this coronavirus. Bob Russell said a couple things that really encouraged and challenged me, and I thought they might encourage you as well. First and foremost, he quoted a preacher from the early 1900s by the name of A.W. Tozer, who said this, he said, a frightened world needs a fearless church. And what that said to me, like it's a time for us now to live out what we say. It's time for us to live out what we sing, and it's time for us to live out what we read in God's Word. This is an uncertain time that is affecting our world in a lot of different ways, but my friends, fear cannot paralyze us. We need to trust that our God has got this. He is bigger than anything we face, and He is walking with us every step of the way. I thought about this. Can you imagine going through this coronavirus pandemic without knowing Jesus? Like we have a hope that the rest of this world doesn't have and this world needs to see that hope through us collectively as the church and through each of us as individual Christians. On your screen right now is a link to an article that Bob Russell put out with 11 ways to be joyful during this coronavirus pandemic. I thought it was such good stuff that I made my, my, my three kids read it as part of their God's time. And the link, again, to that article is on screen right now. I hope and pray you'll take five minutes to look at that article as part of your God's time. It would be a great read for a family during a family God's time as well. One of the messages Bob Russell gave to those young preachers on that video message was just a he said this. He said, preach the truth and point to the one who has all the answers. He said, preach the Bible and the Holy Spirit will do the rest. And I needed to hear that because I initially thought, man, this is a little bit awkward to be doing a sermon series in the midst of all this. And I say, shame on me for thinking that this morning I am going to preach the Bible and I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Today we begin a series of lessons on some of the lesser known individuals in the Bible. And the curriculum I'm working through to build this series of messages was written by Chuck Swindoll, and it was called Fascinating Stories of Forgotten Lives. And each week uh, that I have a chance to speak, we're going to look at one of these forgotten lives from God's Word. In weeks to come, you're going to be hearing about Esau and Achan and Samuel and Saul and Abigail. And today we begin our series by looking at the life of a guy named Cain. If you have your Bible open, look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth the man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, 
Abel. And this is the first child that has ever been born. Remember, Adam was created by God. Eve was created by God with a little bit of help from Adam's rib. And now we have Cain, who is the first child of Adam and Eve. And the name Cain comes from a Hebrew word, Cana, which means to acquire or create. And in this instance, Adam and Eve probably named him Cain because they created him just as, as God had created them. And as Eve put it, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth the man. You know, we treat the birth of a child as an amazing uh, act of God today, and it is. But can you imagine how shocked Adam and Eve had to be throughout this pregnancy and birthing process? Do you think Adam thought that Eve was simply putting on weight when her stomach grew? Can you imagine Eve's reaction when she felt something kick inside her stomach for the first time? Do you think they expected a fully grown adult to pop out when Eve gave birth? Or did they know that it would be an eight-pound baby, even though they'd never seen anyone smaller than an adult? Things that make you go, hmm, questions that we won't have answered until we meet Jesus. Interesting side note here, there is a small hint in the original language that seems to indicate that these two may have been twins, Cain and Abel, but we can't be sure. Cain was a farmer like his father, while Abel was a shepherd. Cain, the Bible says, worked the soil, and Abel kept flocks. Look at verses 3 through 5 in Genesis 4. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. The obvious immediate question as you read this text, why did the Lord have favor on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's? And no one can be absolutely positively certain, but here are a couple likely reasons why. Number one is that Abel offered a blood sacrifice, and Cain didn't. The consistent message we see in Scripture is that sinners are to offer God a sacrifice that requires the shedding of blood. If you're a Christian, then your blood sacrifice was Jesus. Hebrews 9.22 says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, I don't want you to go out tonight and sacrifice a goat so that you can be forgiven of your sins. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus is sufficient. We don't have to keep offering blood sacrifices to God over and over. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Simply put, Jesus doesn't need to be crucified again, and we don't need to offer animal sacrifices to be forgiven. The blood that Jesus spilled on the cross is an everlasting blood sacrifice for our sin. Abel offered fat portions from some of the firstborns of his flock. He offered a blood sacrifice to God. Cain, on the other hand, offered only fruit. I think it's fair to assume that Adam had taught both Cain and Abel how to approach God and what types of offerings and sacrifices were acceptable. But Cain, for some reason, still did his own thing. He offered something different, and God wasn't very pleased. Another reason why Abel's sacrifice may have not been or may have been accepted and why Cain's maybe wasn't was because of this principle. The form 
of the sacrifice and the spirit of the sacrifice matter to God. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Uh, let me assume our, my good friend Scott Russell loves donuts, all right? And, and you know Scott, our worship leader here that does an amazing job. He's also, I'm going to call you Scott now, like our on-site producer. Scott's going to come out here right now. He's the guy that sets up all this AV stuff to make us look good and sound good. And, and so I bring him on stage. Scott, I want to thank you for all your hard work here. You do a great job making ugly guys like me look good. I appreciate that and sound good. And so um, I've got this dozen Krispy Kreme donuts that awesome. I got. And uh, while I'm kind of shoveling one of these, uh, these hot, fresh Krispy Kreme donuts in my mouth, I wanted to thank you. I got this stale munchkin that I got at Kroger about a week ago. And I wanted to give you, and I kind of pull that back two or three times while I'm shoveling some of these donuts. And then I eventually, thanks for what you do, brother. We Thanks. love you and we appreciate you here. God bless your ministry. Thanks. Yeah, keep up the good work, all right? And uh, after Scott, first of all, I need to chew my donut, okay? After he lays me out on the pavement and probably takes all of my donuts, I think he'd be a little bit ticked off still. And I think there's a couple reasons why. Number one, the quantity of my gift wasn't very acceptable, was it? I've got a dozen donuts here. He's got a munchkin there. Uh, the quality of what I gave to him wasn't acceptable. And the spirit with which I give, I gave to him as I reluctantly parted with my munchkin definitely wasn't acceptable. And contrary to what you and I may have been taught, all three of those matter to God. The quantity, the quality, and the spirit. Most of us know the spirit matters to God. The Bible says, makes that abundantly clear that how we give is critical. Audra, in her offering meditation thought last week, shared 2 Corinthians 8, where it says that God loves a cheerful giver. Most of us know the quality of our sacrifice matters to God. Fresh donuts are going to be appreciated more than stale ones. God, God says in the Bible that he wants our best. He wants our first fruits and not our leftovers. But I want you to realize this morning that the quality, the quantity of our sacrifice matters to God as well. One of my favorite memories as a kid was attending summer camp at Round Lake Christian Camp. The chance to play basketball, meet pretty girls, and learn about Jesus was something I looked forward to every year. And I was a mischievous camper. If something went wrong, there was a pretty good chance that I was involved. This is a true story. I remember staying in one of the dorms in the lodge side at Round Lake, 16 beds in this dorm. We wake up in the morning and there's a curtain that's ripped. And I pointed out to one of my dorm dads, I said, um, I could have done that possibly. I act up in my sleep. Uh, there's a chance that I may have ripped that curtain down. And the next thing I knew, true story, they were asking, you owe 20 bucks for the new curtains. And so I paid $20. But if something went wrong, um, it was just assumed that Rick Cooper was involved, and rightfully so. And one of the staples of Round Lake summer camp, especially back then, were these guys, atomic fireballs. I think they were like two cents when I went to camp. Now, 50 years later, who knows, with inflation, how much they caught. That was a joke. But, but as a junior high camper, I was wrestling 
with one of the kids in one of those dorms on the lodge side at Round Lake, and I got one of these fireballs wedged in my throat. And I went up to one of the faculty who was in the dorm. He was a missionary from Africa by the name of Wayne McGee. And I said, Wayne, I'm choking. And I had pulled, this is early in the week, I had pulled so many pranks already at that week of camp that Wayne McGee didn't believe me. He thought I was joking, not choking, and so he didn't do anything. And finally, after a couple more pleas, I'm choking, Wayne McGee came over, put his hand on my back, and, and smacked it, and the fireball literally shot across the length of the dorm, and the guy saved my life. I was, uh, the girls felt sorry for me the rest of the week at camp, so that was a good thing, but Wayne McGee said, Rick, I didn't know if you were kidding, but I wasn't going to take any chances. When my dad arrived at the end of the week, um, I wanted to introduce him. I told him this story of what had happened, and I wanted to introduce him to this guy that had saved my life. Eventually, they met, and my dad wanted to show his appreciation to Wayne McGee, and so he pulled out his wallet, true story again, and he offered Wayne McGee a $20 bill uh, for his efforts, for saving my life, and Wayne McGee graciously declined the money personally I was a little bit hacked off at my dad by the quantity of my dad's offer. This man had saved my life, and the best my dad could offer was a $20 bill. I said, Dad, I thought I was at least worth a 50. For some of you, after five weeks of quarantine with your kids, you may not even pull out a $20 bill right now. Some of you may slug somebody right now if they stepped in and saved your child at this point. Let me ask you a couple serious questions, though, this morning. What is it worth to us to know that the God of this universe paid for our sins on the cross? He saved our lives so that we could have a chance to spend our eternity with him. What's that worth? What's it worth to know that the ministries that happen through here at East Point Christian Church are impacting people for Christ, not only here in Blacklick, but in central Ohio, in the United States, and to the ends of the earth? What is it worth to know that uh, the, 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 thing, the people that are going to have an opportunity to change their eternities because of the, the gifts and the offerings that we choose to give. I can tell you how we should answer that question. The answer is, it should change everything. I remember as a kid being told the story of the widow's offering in Luke chapter 21. The Bible says that Jesus watched the rich people drop their gifts in a collection box in the temple and then he watched as a widow dropped in two small coins. And he surprised them by praising the gifts of the widow and not that of the rich. And if you're like me, you're taught that, that this proves that Jesus doesn't care about the quantity of the gift. And that what matters is the spirit with which we give. What matters most is the spirit. And that may be true. But it's worth noting what Jesus actually says about those two copper coins from that widow. In Luke 21, 4 the New Living Translation says, for they, the rich, have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, the widow, poor as she is, has given everything she has. Don't miss this. Jesus not only noticed what they put in the plate, but he noticed what was left in their pockets. And for the widow, it was easy to count because she had nothing left. She had literally given everything she had. So what separated that gift from the others wasn't just her heart or her spirit, but it was the quantity of her gift as well. What separated her from the rich people was that she made a sacrifice that hurt. 
She literally gave everything she had to God. May we give generously this morning. May we give sacrificially. May we give more than a tiny part of our surplus. And we, may we make it abundantly clear to our God how grateful we are for Jesus, not only by how we give every Sunday morning, but by what we give as well. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, the writer makes it clear that Abel offered a quote-unquote better sacrifice than Cain's. Cain's sacrifice was mediocre. Abel's was excellent. He gave with the right quality, the right quantity, and he did it with the right spirit. And the Bible says that God looked favorably on Abel as a result. Chuck Swindoll says Abel's was excellent. Cain's was mediocre. Listen to this. This should serve as a warning to anyone who thinks that God will accept anything we choose to bring as long as we're sincere. If your primary passion is to please God, which I hope it is, then I encourage you to follow these guidelines when you make sacrifices to him. When you sing praises to God on Sunday mornings, do it with the right spirit. Like pour out your heart in worship to God. Do it in your living room today. But lifting your hands or closing your eyes are great ways to worship God and to focus on him. But make sure you do it with the right spirit. Make sure you do it with the right reasons. Make sure your primary passion is to lift up Jesus and not to impress those sitting next to you. Giving two copper coins may be acceptable for a poor widow or a three-year-old in a Sunday school class, but it's probably not enough for a couple on a full-time salary or a 16 or 17-year-old student who's earning a couple hundred dollars a month in a part-time job to whom much is given much is expected. Notice that in verse 5, it says that Cain was angry and downcast, that God did not look favorably on his sacrifice. What you're going to find out is that in just a few moments that, that Cain let his anger out on the wrong person. Maybe Cain should have been angry at God for not accepting the sacrifice. More than that, uh, maybe that anger should have been directed at himself for not appropriately offering a uh, sacrifice to God. But instead, he takes it out on his brother Abel, who didn't do anything wrong. Look at verses 6 and 7 in Genesis 4. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. I'm intrigued by that phrase, if you do what is right. What do you think God meant when he told Cain that he would be accepted if he would only do what is right? I think he was telling Cain that he could overcome his mistakes. He's reminding Cain that he can turn things around. As Chuck Swindoll put it, his opportunity to do right isn't over just because he failed to do the right thing earlier. He can repent, obtain the proper offering, and return it to the altar with a humble, obedient heart. Swindoll goes on to say, in other words... It's never too late to start doing the right thing. Notice the warning that comes from God at the end of verse 7. The Lord said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The New English translation puts that last phrase this way. It says, it, sin, desires to dominate you, but you must suppress it. The word suppress means to put an end to something by force. A cough suppressant puts an end to a cough. When Ricky and Price, my two oldest boys, were young, 
they got a pretty cool Christmas gift that was a replica of a game at Chuck E. Cheese. They got one of those games that you see at Chuck E. Cheese where you smash the little groundhogs and weasels with a big hammer. And the only problem that we had with the game is they ended up using the hammer more on me and on each other than they did on the, the groundhogs. But when you hammer one of those little critters back into the hole, you suppress them, at least temporarily. You put an end to those little groundhogs by force. And in essence, what God told Cain was this, you have an opportunity to put an end to this sinful situation by doing the right thing. But sin is waiting right around the corner. The devil wants to feed off of your previous mistake. Satan wants to use those past failures to dominate you. And for some of you this morning, I imagine that may be the take home from today's message that deal with your sin now before the devil uses it to dominate you. Leaving a sin unresolved makes us more vulnerable to more sin. It's kind of like the football team that doesn't finish off their opponent when they have a chance. Instead of blowing the game wide open early and blowing them out, they make mistakes early and they allow the opponent to hang around. I, I always use a boxing analogy whenever I'm coaching a team, whenever I'm broadcasting a game, and basically it's this. I will tell my players, I will tell my, my listeners, when you have an opponent up against the ropes, you better knock them out. Failure to knock out an opponent in the first or second quarter can lead to danger in the fourth quarter, and it can lead to defeat. So let me ask you this morning, are you allowing the devil to hang around in some critical areas of your life? Do you have unresolved sin that you need to give to God this morning? Is there sin in your past that you have yet to turn your back on? Understand the devil isn't satisfied with where you're at. His desire is to build on your mistakes so that he can dominate you. And you and I need to slam the door on sin and we need to do it right now while we have the chance. I don't know what sin that you need to slam the door on. I'll talk to students for a moment. Um, I want to talk about academic integrity. And I imagine being at home and doing all this homeschool in front of a computer, um, it's got to be a whole lot easier to compromise your, your integrity academically because nobody's watching. And maybe they're just busy work assignments. Maybe they don't even count for a grade. But understand, students, the devil isn't done with you. What appears to be a little sin is still sin, and you need to shut it out right now. The next step may involve cheating on major exams. It may be cheating at your, at your job, and it may eventually lead to cheating on your spouse. Maybe the devil's getting ready to dominate your eyes. Maybe you need to slam the door while you can on some explicit websites or magazines. Maybe the devil is in the process of dominating your witness. Maybe you've done some stuff at work or at school that has really hurt your credibility with G for Jesus. Maybe the devil's next step is to lead you down a path that will absolutely destroy and demolish your witness for Jesus. To make sure that doesn't happen, you need to slam the door and finish the job today. Chuck Swindoll compares it to the couple who always goes to bed angry. Instead of slamming the door on their differences and working things out before they go to bed, they let things linger, blossom, and spread. He says, what was once a very small issue turns into a huge feud that can lead to conflict, bitterness, abuse, affairs, and maybe even a divorce. It's critical that we immediately repent and obey. 
bad things happen when we don't, and bad things happen to Cain. Look at verse 8 in Genesis 4. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Three verses ago, we read about a dude that was just angry and downcast. Now that same guy is guilty of premeditated murder. And the original language here for killed him indicates it can refer to an animal sacrifice. It can also refer to a murder or a judicial execution, which was what God wanted from Cain in the first place. Do you think in his anger that maybe Cain killed Abel in such a way that it resembled an animal being sacrificed? It's possible. I can envision Cain screaming, you wanted an animal sacrifice, God. Well, here's your animal sacrifice. Chuck Swindoll says, a secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. And that's what we see here, is God immediately knew of Cain's actions. Look at verse 9 in Genesis 4. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Not only did Cain murder his brother, but you can tell the dude's got no remorse for his actions. God gave Cain a golden opportunity to confess, but Cain tries to cover up things instead. Let's look at the consequences and then we'll be done. Look at verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you were under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Always give your absolute best to God. And always slam the door on sin and guilt. Just as my boys suppressed me and the gophers with the whack-a-mole game at Chuck E. Cheese. Suppress sin while you've got the chance before it has a chance to dominate you as well. I'll leave you with this. The best news today is that God still loves us no matter what. He lived a perfect life and died a horrible death to help us understand how no matter what his love really is. No matter what you've done to create separation in your relationship with God and no matter how many times you've done it, Jesus is still waiting to bridge the gap and amend your relationship with him. As we close our service today, I just wanted to read from Luke chapter 6 real quick. Verse 38 says this, Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Now, when Jesus is talking about this in this section, he's talking about being generous towards others and the way we judge them, the way that we treat them. But I think the same principle can be applied to the way that we give of our money and our time and the things that we have in our lives that are material and non-material. I think all of it comes together. I think the point of this is God cannot be outgiven. 
no matter how much you give, you'll always get more back. But the more you hold on to, the less you'll have. And I think we've all found that principle to be true. So I just use this verse to encourage you. Please continue to be generous in your tithes and your offerings to East Point. Uh, here at the end, there will be a, a, a graphic that shows you where you can go to give. You can give online. You can drop off a check at church. You can text to give. There are a lot of different options here. But no matter what format that giving takes, please understand that we are doing our best here at East Point to use all of the resources that we're given to be a blessing not just to ourselves in this community at East Point, but also the community at large and also our whole world in spreading the good news of Jesus. So thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you so much for your patience and being part of this online community as we navigate these uncharted waters. And man, we can't wait to get back together with you guys. Hopefully it will happen soon. Please keep praying for that. And please keep praying for those uh, who are affected in this world by this terrible virus. We'll see you next week. Whoa, whoa. Oh, God.